Welcome to another episode of Tell Me More. My name is Luke Stair, and I'm here with Dr. Wiles and Katie Reed Hodges, and we are talking about the family, culture, but also how to do the right thing in the right way. And we had really, we always have a good time with our conversations, and we hope that it is formative and enjoyable for you as you listen. Thanks for being here. We're in the studio finishing our series on the family. Why does it matter? And Pastor, you wrapped up last week with... The family will survive. Do y'all know the song? I don't know who sings it. Probably one of Willie Nelson's friends. Country boy will survive. You know what I'm talking about? I don't. Country boy can survive. That's that's what runs through my head when you say anything will survive. Um, All right. Just email me when you, if anybody knows that song, I'll Google it later. The family well, will survive. But it's I'm country. Luke Sayre, and Katie Reed Hodges <laughs> is singing, and we're here with Dr. Dennis R. Wiles. Hey, everybody. So we're talking about family. Uh, anything else you all want to say about your families before we move on into eternity? That'll which, take forever. Which we don't. <laughs> get it? You get it? You get it? Oh, oh, Luke, uh, get it? Luke, get oh, it now. Oh, oh. Luke, now. Oh, that was really quiet. <laughs> it's very subtle. That's probably what that joke deserved. We had a fun lunch, and we're all caffeinated, so if we are a bit jazzed up on this podcast today. And you usually say, usually tell people when we're doing this, you always say, in full disclosure. In full disclosure, Mm -hmm. today, it's Tuesday afternoon, because we had Memorial Day yesterday. Awesome. And this morning, we had a nice staff meeting, get us Mm -hmm. all on the same page before Mm -hmm. camp and summer, and our kitchen cooked us a delicious pot pot roast lunch. Oh my goodness. Good. If y'all don't, y'all listening, don't come to many of our church meals. I would mm. just invite you because our kitchen is just consistently good. Mm-hmm. And whatever they do, whether it's chicken nuggets or something a little fancier, they can really they good. produce a good product. Really good. So They do well yep. on a big range. And if you want a place to eat that, lunch every Wednesday is $8, and it's always good. Well, speaking of family. Here we go. Um, my brother Emerson, my older brother Emerson, is actually in the state of Texas this week. He is over in Rockwall uh, visiting my nephew, Auburn, their youngest son, Auburn. His wife, Annalise, have just had a new baby. They already have one little boy, Maverick, and they have a new baby, Xander. And so Emerson and Mary have come to visit um, their newest grandson. Sweet. And so I'm going Xander. to- Xander. Is, is his name Xander. Alexander? And they're nope. going to call him Xander? Xander. With a Z, Z- or an X? Z-A-N-D-E-R. Get it. <clears throat> Get it. And, um, so, is there a middle uh, name? <laughs> Yes, I've okay. already forgotten what his middle name is. Just, That's okay. We'll keep his privacy sorry, on the internet. This is this is tell me more. I just <laughs> yeah, wanted to know everything. Know Xander. So, yeah. <laughs> Xander's okay. plenty, I think. But uh, I'm, mm. I'm going to go over there and see them tonight and um, just have some time with my brother and sister-in-law. And um, so, yeah, that's part of my family. My brother was, um, both of my brothers really were kind of heroes to me growing up, you know, my older brothers. Mm-hmm. Just always looked up to them. And, um Appreciate who they were and who they've become. Anything you want to tell us about that that you haven't? <laughs> oh, I'm serious. We're we're not going to talk yeah. about our families as much. Well, you know, they're just as we they're move just on. Two great guys. It's funny. My brothers are very very different. My my middle brother 
closest to me in age. Tommy is very similar to my mom's family. My older brother Emerson's a little more my dad's side of the family. And I'm somewhat, my mom always said I was kind of in between the two. And I think that's true. Emerson's a really strong leader, strong personality, and just a really good guy, really good athlete, always has been, still is. And uh, Emerson's one of those guys that, like, you'll, if you're going to, I'll never forget, I went to teach and play racquetball. He came out to visit me at Southwestern, and he's a tennis player, golfer. He played baseball in college, got drafted by the Cardinals and baseball. So he's a really good athlete, but he never played racquetball before. He's the kind of guy that if you teach him Doesn't to play matter. something, he'll just beat you the yep. first time he plays you. Mm. <laughs> so he's, he's that one. And uh, so, uh, anyway, but um, just good. Good guys, I love them, and they're great men. So, well, good. I'm, I'm glad y'all get to hang them. out. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Following in the footsteps. So, speaking of that, I guess the triplets are good. They are. They're a little bit. Yep, they're good. They're six months old now. Wow. They got their six month shots on Friday, and we're still dealing with a little bit of fussiness and mm. tummy stuff, and yeah. you know, this is their first Memorial Day, though. Yes. Yeah, they seem to enjoy it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any barbecue? Seemed a lot like every other a day. Pool time. Yeah, not yet, not yet. <laughs> So one day it's coming. Yeah, no, it's good. So okay, well, shall we? We shall. Mm-hmm. So yesterday, excuse me, we took yesterday off. Sunday. Sunday, mm-hmm. you you used Genesis as the text, but you you really preached. I think for you, you wanted to be hopeful, maybe optimistic mm-hmm. for our people. Correct. To say something like, "Don't you worry, the family's not going anywhere." Correct. And you backed that with a lot of statistics mm-hmm. that honestly were a little bit surprising to me. Luke, mm-hmm. any of those kind of catch you? Mm-hmm. No, I think— No, you weren't surprised at all. I was not surprised. Because you're a researcher. I do enjoy the research. And you've already read these statistics. <laughs> yeah. Well, for the average <laughs> average person. Yeah, I think I would— surprising to me. Kind of put a tagline on some of those that even though people between 18 and 29, I believe it was, mm-hmm. still want marriage, most of them are delaying it more. Correct. Um, so it's a milestone that occurs later into adulthood. Mm-hmm. I think we're the latest ever now. We've crossed the threshold. Yeah. Men and women both uh, wait much later. I think what encouraged me was, it's been a little while since I've looked at some of the more independent kind of research, but uh, you know, I do look at Brookings Institute and the American Educa- American Enterprise Institute. They're, they're, you know, they kind of, one of them leans a little left, the other leans a little right, but, but they both really are nonpartisan. They don't really work for a political party in America, unlike some of the other think tanks we have that, you know, you look at who's on the board or who's mm-hmm. who the scholars are, and it really leans really hard, you know, one way or right. another, which is, which is okay. I mean, it is what it is. Both of those, even though Brookings leans a little left, American Enterprise leans a little right, they're both very, in my opinion, um, often fair-minded, data-driven, do a lot of hard research. And, um, and so um, I was grateful to just see some of that research. And, you know, again, it's not, I mean, it's not perfect. And I wouldn't say that it necessarily reflects a biblical worldview. I, w- mm-hmm. I would not make that argument. I tried not to make that argument Sunday. That was not the point. Mm-hmm. But just the idea that woven into the, the just the ethos of our culture, uh, even in the midst of the, the free enterprise system we have, there's still a very profound commitment to our what you might consider traditional view of family, mm-hmm. you know, and marriage and parenting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I found it fascinating that 80% of American adults have grown up with a sibling in some kind of family setting. <clears throat> I did think it was interesting that the we're, as Americans today, are more likely to marry across religious lines than political ones. Now, that might signal a 
mm-hmm. a little bit of a shift. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Ryan and I talked about that a little moving bit. Moving forward is mm-hmm. kind of fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe it shouldn't be. I, I don't know. Should it be? There's a really good book about that mean. as politics is central to our identity. It's called To Change the World by James Davison Hunter. Mm-hmm. He's a good Christian. Yes. Also a really good sociologist. Mm-hmm. And he writes about that very clearly and very well. So mm-hmm. that's a shift that's been happening. Mm-hmm. And that's a great years. book. Yeah, and I've read that book. I guess I just, I want to, I've, I've just thought back on when I really began thinking about it, just preparing for the sermon. I just started going through my list of couples mm. <laughs> in my life. And, uh, you know, I, I can name a few that have different political views. But I found myself agreeing mm. just with my own little survey myself based upon what I know about people. Yeah, there's a lot if, of similarity. If they disagree, would you think? This is why I say this. Uh, Ryan's grandparents, his grandfather Jack, has passed away, but they had different political views. And I can think of a couple other really traditionals in their generation mm-hmm. that had differing political views. Mm-hmm. But they're older. Mm-hmm. But I can't think of many my age mm-hmm. that would hitch their wa- hitch mm-hmm. the wagon. You mm-hmm. know, is that true when you do your little mental survey of people you know? Mm, yeah, maybe I would say uh, there are people that are my peer group. Okay. That I know. I'm talking about even older. Are different. And, um, um, but yeah, I guess I didn't think about younger couples. I might have to think about that for a little bit, but it's just fascinating. But I I was just encouraged though, by the fact that even the single adult population, and again, there's, we've tried to be thoughtful in addressing anything we talk about here. There is, you can be a, a fully flourishing, incredibly successful, godly invested person and not be married. I mean, that's obvious. I mean, we have many of those people in our church. We do. Jesus would qualify as one. Yes. Yes. um, Mm -hmm. As a Southern Baptist, historically, Lottie Moon would qualify this unbelievably successful missionary, Mm -hmm. almost got married, but then didn't. Um, But I just found it fascinating, though, that about two thirds of single adults say they plan to get married. In Mm -hmm. other words, it's not like it's an institution that's lost its grip, yeah. if you will. Yeah. So that was encouraging to me. And, and I don't think that should surprise me because, you know, in the, in the scripture, it, uh, somewhere, I feel like the writer of Hebrews, somewhere it is written, somewhere in Genesis, the scripture says something like, as long as the earth exists, there's going to be seed time and harvest. I mean, it's God's word that, you know, this right here, mm. this rhythm that I've put in place is going to be here. Um, I, I think family would fall into that category. Mm. This is the way God's designed it, and it's the way it's going to be. So the family will survive, yeah. regardless of the onslaught. Mm-hmm. There's, there, there are plenty of onslaughts. You know, you think about um, how difficult it was, not just in the American context, but just historically in general with regard to slavery, how oftentimes the oppressors gave no regard to family considerations with their slaves. You know, you can mm. you can pretty much document that historically. And again, not just slaves in America, but they would be a great case in point, how families were separated, but how they never lost, the slave population never gave up on its celebration of weddings and in the middle of slavery, you mm-hmm. know, and, and births of children and, you know, and somehow managing to hold on to an institution that was, was important to them. Um, even though there was an onslaught against it, there was no value given to it by the people who owned them. Um, you still, they didn't eradicate it, you know, and I'm not even sure, you know, if, if that wasn't even the attempt by some of the slave owners, you know, to somehow disintegrate those familial connections. But 
It just yeah. doesn't seem to work. Well, I don't remember if you said this on Sunday, but this has made me think about it. You know, animals don't marry, but people do. And inherent to slavery is treating people as not people. Yeah. And in order to treat a human as not a human, one of the things that you would do is just rip away one of the most human of institutions in marriage. Mm-hmm. Um to make them yeah. like animals. Not that you could yeah. ever do that, but yeah. I think it speaks to the persistent nature of the image of God in us that people who were trapped in slavery kept hold of this very human, God-given institution. That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. I mean, we're given to marriage, and uh, and I believe it's I believe it's going to survive. Mm. And I think even today it's thriving today in spite of so many challenges, you know, so many questions that are being raised today and um, things that, you know, and when I was y'all's age, you know, um, some of this, some of the questions were that are being asked, they were not being raised then, mm-hmm. you know, um, because things were um, viewed a little more, um, the, the, the lines were a little more clearly drawn. So questions about maybe sexuality? Yeah, you know, things like polyamory, <coughs> you know, so mm-hmm. in other words, mm-hmm. can you be married to two people, the, you know, the, at one time? The modern thruple. Right. Have you heard this phrase? Yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. Well, you know, when I was y'all's age, when I was starting in ministry, you know, that was universally frowned upon, both within the religious circles and beyond them. I mean, the people that, even when you come through the 60s, the whole free love thing, it wasn't, marriage wasn't attacked. You know what I mean? It was more expression of sexuality, but not marriage, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and so it's kind of interesting that today, you know, the conventional approach to things is is uh is kind of questioned across the board. And and as I shared Sunday morning, one of the things that I lament, but I hope to I mean, I just have a very small role in it myself, you know, just in the little little bit that I play, is to try to keep space for good, honest, philosophical conversation. Yeah, you spent a bit of Sunday talking about that. Yeah, I just think it's important. You use the word society. dexterity. Yeah, I feel like we've it seems to me that we're losing our dexterity, our ability to do that. We seem to scream at each other or live in an echo chamber, one of the two. Yeah. And that's very fascinating to me. It's it's to our detriment, in my opinion. Um, I think that when you get the diversity of perspectives in the same room to have good, honest conversation, it doesn't cause you to believe what you believe any less I think it even clarifies what you believe, but it also gives clarity to the conversation, you know, mm-hmm. to where you can actually um, help others draw the boundaries that they're accepting that they may not even see. Mm-hmm. That that tends to happen in debate, in my opinion. And right now, there's an erosion of that, and it's mm-hmm. almost like everything just kind of get collapsed. Everything just gets collapsed together, you know, because you can you can pick one or two hot button topics, and then when I find out you know, what you think about those, well, then I can paint, paint with a broad brush and I've got you back to the corner. I know exactly who you are. When human beings are complex mm-hmm. creatures and we're able to hold things in tension and live with some ambiguity, not, not ambivalence, but a little bit of ambiguity mm-hmm. and, and, and mm-hmm. also a little bit of mm-hmm. tolerance toward others. Uh, and, and I think that's the better path. I, um, I've been asked by the Baptist Standard to, to write a couple of articles. There's a group of us that are writing a series of articles on centrism. What, what does it mean to be a centrist? Mm. So Todd Steele, dean at Truett Seminary, uh, and I, and uh, Travis Collins, he's a pastor in Alabama at First Baptist Huntsville, where mm-hmm. I used to pastor. Um, there are several of us on this writing team, and uh, I'm doing the opening article, the opening salvo of what is centrism. 
And, uh, you know, mm. some people have so made you got your fun wheels of turning. it. Yeah, they, they've poked fun at it, you know, back when when we were in the height of our controversy in the Southern Baptist Convention, one of our prominent pastors said, uh, the only thing in the middle of the road is a dead skunk. Well, in other words, if you're mm-hmm. not convicted, you know, and you stand over here on the right, then <laughs> you're just a milk toast. You know, you really don't believe anything. When my view is, well, what I have always found in the middle of the road, either a little bit right or a little bit left, is a whole lot of pavement. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and, uh, so, and then I've also discovered ditches on both sides. And so that centrist approach is, um, is very attractive to me. Mm-hmm. That third space, if you want to call it that, where you hold some things in tension and you have leanings maybe on some things one direction or another. Mm-hmm. That feels to me like being the most responsible, particularly in the culture that I'm in now. But it feels like it's space harder and harder to claim. It is. You know, so. I was actually jogging my mind about a conversation I had last night. So one of my good friends from college very providentially, we'll just say that, lives down the street from us. I went to college in Missouri. I, did, I graduated with like 50 people. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, the likelihood. It's just slim. Two of the 50 live on or in your neighborhood. Yeah, right? my neighborhood. So, and he <clears throat> was the philosophy me. professor at DBU when they still had a philosophy department. Um, but we were just talking about this last night. He's now in an Anglican tradition, but him trying to maintain this, and he even used the wording of, you know, conservative theology of maintaining a traditional sexual ethic, but also living and holding some views that some would deem progressive. So around things like how do we treat people in poverty and just him talking about how maintaining this tension. So mm-hmm. I think for people our age who maybe didn't grow up in the controversy, I'm pointing to Katie. You can't see me pointing, but I'm pointing to Katie. Of Living in this middle is not a weak or a milk toast yeah. way of being it. If anything, I think it's attractive to our. It's attractive a lot of our peers, but it requires so much more dexterity to it use does. your word of navigating. How do I live right? And in it's, this it's middle less space, soundbitey. Mm-hmm. And if you, it's not poli- it's not inherent inherently political, but the soundbiteiness kind of bleeds into what we're used to on network TV, network news, and it takes it takes it's a little more maturity and nuance above some of that, which is harder. And not everybody will go there, right? They won't. It, it almost sounds like the narrow, the narrow way. And it, and it requires you to think. I think that's also the issue. Um, I mean, I feel like one of my hopes in my ministry is, is that I've helped people and encouraged them to think because uh, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your mind. And so to me, we're supposed to be thoughtful about these issues. I mean, Jesus, you know, they come up to Jesus and say, okay, here's, here's a coin with Caesar's picture on it. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Who do you give this to? Well, that was a hot button topic in his day. Mm-hmm. You know, it was chafing on the neck of the Jews. It wasn't like just some random question. Mm-hmm. That was actually mm-hmm. a pretty serious question. Well, Jesus had given some thought to that. You know, he didn't just blow it off. You know, I mean, he said, well, I'll tell you what. Well, why don't you give to Caesar what is Caesar's? But what you really need to do is make sure you give to God what is God's. Well, that that just left a pop. That I don't know that Jesus would we say respectfully he had mic drop moments. Yeah, I mean, but but that's just one of those. Well, there you go. Well, uh-huh. yeah. Think about that. Well, there, there's a lot of room there. To so think. yesterday, excuse me, 
Monday. Sunday. Sunday. Yesterday was Monday. Sunday, Sunday when you preached. That day that you preached the sermon that we were currently talking about. <laughs> the issue that you talked about needing a little bit of dexterity and mm-hmm. nuance and a centrist thoughtfulness to it was kind of this parsing of when we talk about the LGBTQIA+. Correct. Correct. That maybe those aren't – they shouldn't all be blocked into one alphabet I soup. absolutely believe that. And that attraction – Ought not be mixed in with identity. Correct. I would like you to tell us more about that. Yeah. What What got you thinking about that? Where's that coming from? Well, I would say that um, for me, as I have listened and watched and participated in many conversations and obviously spent time studying what I believe the Bible teaches about our identity, it's, it's, it's almost as if I'm living in an era uh, you know, if I'd have been around in the second century, you know, um, then I would be in the middle of a debate about the Trinity. You know, what is really the nature of mm. God? How does what is the relationship within the Trinity like? Or if I was in the fourth century, you know, or so maybe fourth and fifth century, what is the what is the nature of Christ? How do we explain who He is? I mean, there there have been all these massive theological conversations historically. I feel like we're in the era now of, of anthropology. It's a question about the identity of humanity. You know, what is, what does it mean to be human? And so I've spent a good bit of time studying that. I, I will admit that I came into that conversation somewhat naively because it just didn't seem like a real conversation to me, at, mm-hmm. at least theologically, for a good part of my ministry. Because to me, I look at the Scripture and say, well, I don't believe the Bible condones the practice of homosexuality, and I don't believe the Bible condones monogamous homosexual relationships, and I don't believe the Bible condones the idea of those monogamous homosexual couples entering into what you and I would call marriage. Okay, so I would tell you that I approach that very, um, with with great conviction and, you know, um, not really a whole lot of thought. It just felt like such a given to me and so easy to see in the Scripture. Well, about, I don't know how many years ago it was. I think it predates you, Katie, even coming to our church. I know it predates you, Lee, Luke. Um, but um, I decided, you know what? I'm, I'm going to suspend as best I can. I'm going to suspend what I think I know. And I'm going to do a deeper dive into what, what I believe about all this. And what does the text really say? What are the arguments about homosexuality, this whole idea of attraction and 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 how it's lived out in people's lives. So I did that. I, I spent months just engaging that conversation again and listening to the Spirit of God, but also spending some time with the text. You know, looking at what does the Bible actually say, even if I even if I will would have to s- surrender my earlier convictions. In other words, if I were wrong about it. So I spent a good bit of time doing that, and it was um, it was very. Uh, challenging, eye-opening. It opened my my eyes to some arguments that I probably had not given much credit in the past. But regardless, I still came to this conviction that I that I still believe the things that I mentioned earlier. However, I also came to, it, it kind of happened at the same time where I, I was really unpacking what I believe about the Jesus way, which was another um, study that um, convicted me. I read Eugene Peterson's book on the Jesus Way, and it challenged me to think about the fact that I had always taken that as just a statement about my salvation, Mm. not about my sanctification, not Mm. about my life here on earth. And the Lord 
has just shown me that that's what the narrow way really is. It's the Jesus way. And so I'm, and while I was learning, relearning what I believed about human sexuality at the same time, it was juxtaposed with this whole journey for me about what does the Jesus way look like with regard to my culture, my own personal convictions and how to share them. So um, they've, they've, they kind of collided. And so my, my hope, my desire, my prayer to be thoughtful, gracious, loving, I should always be that way, but it was even more intense, I guess, in how I address and more sensitive about how I address these issues and think about the complexity of them, the challenges that are faced in families, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like I've done all this hard work with regard to homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and, I, and again, talked to a lot of homosexuals, our ministry here we, that we support here on our campus. I've visited with a number of folks practicing homosexuals, those who are consider themselves homosexual, but they are not actually living their sexuality out in their daily life, um, et cetera. So um, all of that was very beneficial to me. And I feel like that that conversation, if I can say this respectfully, and I know it may be controversial to some, the whole conversation that's rooted in transgender ideology is just a separate conversation. And I don't believe it belongs in the same conversation. It's almost insulting to me, you know, of for the homosexual. You would actually find counterparts in secular society. There have been some, this is an aside, but there have been lawsuits in the past over whether or not trans people can be part of like gay dating sites, you know, gay, the traditional definition right. being biological men attracted to biological men, same with lesbian, biological right. women. So there have been lawsuits over lesbian and gay organizations and whether or not they admit trans, trans people right. to those organizations. Mm-hmm. So you would actually find some counterparts in secular society who would say these issues are not the same, and we need to think about them differently. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's what I would say, Luke. I I agree with that. I just think, and to me, that is an illustration, just one illustration to me of our lack of dexterity, a lack mm-hmm. of clarity. It's like everything just gets collapsed. Now, I understand mm-hmm. you could make the argument, well, politically, you're looking at people who maybe have been marginalized by society, who have had laws, you know, that have been drafted that are um, restrictive. I, I get that. Mm-hmm. Trust me, I, I do get that. Yeah. But what I would say, even with that, though, I just think the fundamental questions about identity, that's a, that is a very different conversation than how you choose to live out your sexuality in terms of attraction. Those just are two different conversations to me. And, and scientifically, there is just no justification for or, or, or corroboration of um, changing someone's biological sex. Now, you can do it. Of course you can do it. <laughs> you know? So I'm not arguing that. But, but you don't ever um, alter your chromosomal makeup. You may present female, you know, because that can be done chemically and other ways and surgically, but you can't remake your chromosomal makeup. You, you know what I mean? So in other words, I even interviewed some pharmacists about this. There are actually some, and I don't, I'm not smart enough to know what all these are, so if somebody's going to write in and say, what are they? I have no idea. I'm just telling to talk to some pharmacists about it. There are actually some medications that are uniquely targeted toward the XY chromosomal makeup or the XX chromosomal makeup. It's just a scientific thing. Mm-hmm. And whenever these medications are being used, they have to know, regardless of how you present or whatever, what's your chromosomal makeup, you know, mm-hmm. because it can be damaging. Well, again, that to me is when you when you talk about science, well, that that's why I think science is on the side in the long run of this ideology at some point being separated out 
mm-hmm. which I believe it will be at some point. I just think it will. Um, well, that's just one example. I think that, yeah, what else you, you know, I mean, so, for example, another one to me would be um, how do we respond to um, uh, to abuse, violence, and, and um, uh, what you might might refer to as justification for war on the other side of the mm-hmm. world? Well, sometimes that just gets conflated into an argument of being a strong America. Well, we got to do this. This is, you know, this is who America is. Well, actually, sometimes there's strength in patience. Sometimes there's strength in, you know, you don't always just rush to war. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems to me like to have a clear conversation about that is just really hard to do nowadays. It's mm-hmm. because you're immediately painted into a corner. Mm-hmm. You must be a pacifist. No, mm-hmm. Nobody's ever mentioned being a pacifist. You know, I'm just trying to decide before you start rushing into yeah. everything and spending billions and billions of dollars. You don't love dollars, America. Right. right. What is, yeah, you don't, you're not a patriotic. Right. Oh, actually, I am very patriotic, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but I'm. But there are also times when what that means is to to answer the oppressor, is to somehow engage the oppressor in ways that we can, you know, that that are more thoughtful. That's really what I'm just mm-hmm. I'm just lamenting mm-hmm. is that I. It seems to me in my culture, when you pick some of the gnarly topics, you, it it's just so loud and mm-hmm. everything just gets rolled all in together, mm-hmm. and and if you choose to in some ways, elucidate a position, mm-hmm. well, then you are a whatever phobic or a right. maniac or right. you're hatred or yeah. you're a bigot or, or whatever. You're a warmonger or you're an isolationist. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like we just so quickly and, and rush to things. And I feel like that if, you, if we could let some of the scholars that are researching things that matter to us let them have their day without trying to politicize them, mm-hmm. you know, and let's draw from the research and then let's come to our own conclusions and be thoughtful and then be thoughtful in how we share them. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm being way too. Uh, oh, don't do <laughs> that. No, do I that. think, and I'm if I may. But it's what I believe yeah. should happen. You're right. If I may, on Wednesday at Pastor's Bible Study, you talked about some of these things and some of the things you said, I think, are worth repeating just for the podcast crowd. You know, some of your lines about it's okay to get angry. And, you know, as I've talked to people in our church, you know, Arlington has changed dramatically Mm. since maybe some of our church members moved here. You know, and it's okay to grieve the world that was. Um, You know, this is what I say to groups when I speak to them, but we have tremendous opportunity in the world that we have. So grieve what was, what you miss. Mm. Let's move forward and hope. Um, I think similar, you have said, it's okay to get angry, but we can't stay angry. angry. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then you also have said, uh, why why are we surprised and why are we mad mm-hmm. at lost, lost people, people yeah. for acting lost? That's right. And I, I don't know if you want to say any more yeah. about those things on the podcast, but I think that's a good word when we feel tempted to get angry or grieved about the way that culture is. Mm-hmm. Why are we surprised that lost people act lost? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's okay to be grieved. Mm-hmm. Well, it's okay to be both. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I can understand why you get a little sad. Yeah, at the choices people are making, mm-hmm. but anger mm-hmm. is—I I can't understand that. From an evangelistic right. standpoint, I would just say that it's really hard to present a gospel of hope, truth, <laughs> joy, and right. peace, and love if you're just mad. Yeah, yeah. And, and through an angry voice, and yeah. people know it. Mm-hmm. So we have a loving, hopeful gospel. Mm-hmm. Share it with a loving, hopeful voice, mm-hmm. and that's a great way to put it out. And you're right, Luke. I, I do. I do think, as I said Wednesday. It's okay to get mad. It's just not okay to stay mad. And people will listen to an angry voice only for so long. It finally grates on you. 
you, you, in general, I don't believe angry voices turn the, the world. I don't. The example I used Wednesday was Martin Luther King Jr. Now, you know, I, uh, when I was in seminary, in the PhD program, I chose to, I'd originally planned to do Reformation theology and Reformation history, really. And, um, but I just got enamored with American Christianity. And uh, my major professor, um, I'm not sure he ever forgot, I think he forgave me for it. He was a great godly man, but, uh, but he was a Reformationist. That was yeah, his special. Let's hope. But I just got enamored with American Christianity. And, and so I ended up in these seminars. Well, one of the seminars, my assignment, but I actually, I volunteered for it because I wanted it, was to spend a whole year just studying the voice of the black church during the civil rights era and and try to unwrap and understand better how how the proclamation of freedom and hope was actually shared in the in the in the pulpits in the black pulpits in America because they were if, if you go back and look at so many of the leaders of the civil rights movement they all had reverend in front of their names and they weren't just honorary titles. Mm-hmm. No, no, it was a Christian movement. It was. And Martin Luther King preached every Sunday. People don't realize mm-hmm. he was a Baptist preacher. Yeah. Uh, that's why when we, we worked really hard to get this boulevard going down Center Street renamed, at least a street topper named for Dr. Martin Luther King, I was bent on it saying Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because he's a reverend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, mm-hmm. um, but as I shared with them Wednesday, Okay, Martin Luther King was not perfect. We know that. There's documented evidence of things that, that happened in his life that were probably less than what we would hope to be ideal. However, what I would say about him is, though, he never um, gave in to anger. His sermons, his messages, I've listened to so many of them, particularly when I was doing that seminar. I would sit in the library, y'all, back in those days, and uh, I would listen to these cassette tapes recording recordings. The cassette tape is this little thing. I grew up on about, cassettes. Okay, I was going to I say. had a Teddy Ruxpin. Uh, okay, all right. So anyway, y'all know what they are. But <laughs> if anyway. you remember. <laughs> okay. It yes. played all my cassettes. <laughs> okay. Um, well, anyway, <laughs> and I listened boss. to just, you know, message after message after message of Martin Luther King Jr. And he never gave in to the angry voice. Was he angry? Well, well of course he was angry. I mean, he was, he was righteously indignant. But the message that he proclaimed was one of hope. Even when you read the letter from the Birmingham jail. Oh my goodness. It, it's a hopeful letter. It's 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 a grieving. He's grieving and he chides his fellow pastors in that town, you know, sadly my hometown. Mm-hmm. But but he never gave in to anger. Well guess what? A movement amassed under him and around him and behind him that exists to this day. His mm-hmm. his voice still yep. is associated with that kind of hopeful message. Even when he turned to the Vietnam War. It was still a, a a hopeful, a word about peace and hope and a different way to chart a course. Well, there's something to be said for that. So I think right now, okay, we're in a conversation in our society about anthropology, and I get it. People are angry. I mm-hmm. mean, um, I understand that. I don't condone it. I understand it on both sides. So, so for example, we're watching the uh, these displays in uh, Target stores, and some people are going in and tearing them down, you know, okay? Yeah. Well, I don't advocate violence. My goodness, I'm, I mean, you know, that's not who I am. Um, I understand the frustration when some of these moms and dads are walking in and to a store and going, "Why are you doing this? Why, why don't you have this in the adult section? Why are you Why are you putting all this transgender, mm-hmm. you know, clothing in front of my children?" And so, yes, and, uh, but practically tearing down a display yeah, at a Target I does mean, not exactly. I was about to say you're making like minimum wage workers <laughs> clean up your mess. Correct. It's I'm not exactly what you're going for. I can't see you doing that in the name of Christ, right. but. But I, but I understand the frustration. There's a different way to voice that frustration. 
and to me, it's in hopeful um, message of 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 a reality that we believe matters. That's that's an alternative to that, and um, and so you know when we were talking about that Wednesday, we didn't. I don't know that I used that illustration about Target, but when we talked about posture, I think you know Andy Crouch talks about the difference between gesture and posture. That's how I see anger. Anger can be a gesture. It just can't be a posture. Mm. Posture is long-lasting, and it matters. You know, and so when you're when you think about what's my occasionally my gesture might be overboard. I'm I'm y'all know you've been with me for Katie. You've been here for a good while. I you know I can get eight eight years. I I can get upset about something. So I've got a gesture. Yeah, but you know me well. Yeah, believe it or not, for those listening, he does get upset sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, but that's not my posture. No, it's not. It's just not. Not. I don't see that's. That to me, that's not Jesus' posture. People say, "Well, you know, Jesus went in the temple and you know overturned the tables." He did. Yes, yeah. he did. That was a gesture, yeah. and it was prophetic and profound. And he follows it up though uh-huh. with a powerful insight and message about the whole intent of religion in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, and the whole intent of the temple in the first place. And so, the posture of Jesus is what I'm after. Yeah. And I guess that's what I'm searching for in this current conversation that has to do with anthropology. Is Posture. It's good. And if your posture is an angry gesture, you know, and that's who you become, I just believe that ends up poisoning your soul and it creates roots of bitterness. And it offers um all it does to me is it's it's almost like fuel to an intense fire. And it it never brings um it it, it never brings resolution, I believe, in a healthy way. It might bring resolution. It's kind of like that old story that um, um, who was it that wrote? Who wrote the Brothers Karamazov? Um, Yuri Dostoevsky. Okay, so Dostoevsky. How do you say his name? Yeah, one, more, you, one more time, Luke. Uh, Dos- Dos- yeah. Dostoevsky yes. is the last. Dostoevsky. Okay, I believe. Say it again. He and uh, <laughs> there's a, there's a group of those writers that that wrote these. He's not the writer of what I'm about to tell you, but anyway, there were they, they wrote these thoughtful, provocative narratives that just um, you just sit with them. And so one of them, I can't remember his name right now, but he wrote a short story about uh, a family that was trying to, um, um, this dad was trying to provide for his son, and he and his wife were kind of in a little bit of a disagreement about the way they were to do it, and the son was getting ready to go somewhere, and and um, and the mom felt like we need to provide for him to do this, and the dad disagreed, felt like it was catering to him and, you know, it was pandering him, whatever. So finally, it comes to a head one night, and, and, and it's like the boy does not have the means to do whatever it is that's in front of him. The mom knows that. The dad knows that. And so they're at the table, and the dad just says, um, okay, okay, I'm, gonna give, I'm going to give it to you, okay? I'm, I'm going to do it. And then it's like he pulls out his wallet and says, here, just take everything I have, and just throws the wallet at the boy. You know, just take everything. Go ahead. Why don't you just, you want my shirt? Well, ugly, awful scene. The boy goes to bed. Well, he gets up the next morning, and the money's on the table, okay? But, but the gift has been ruined in the giving of it. Yeah. The, in other words, this dad's posture, his gesture had become his posture for so long. Even when he did something right, it just lost its, mm-hmm. it lost its power. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to avoid in the American church. And so I know I've got this teeny tiny little role to play. I'm just right here in our little, our little place. But but I feel like if we can get enough of us, mm-hmm. we can find our way to have That's a conversation good. in a Christ-like way that never surrenders our convictions. That's why I think That's people good. misunderstand. 
they think, well, you're surrendering your conviction. A centrist has no convictions. That is, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the hardest part of the road. You know, that's the deepest part of the pavement. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where you have the most, that's where you have the most strength, the mm -hmm. most, the platform to really mm -hmm. make a difference. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I don't that's know. Y'all don't need to, I'm, I'm, I'm a little too If I may, in closing <laughs> us, to quote you. I like it. To quote you back to you in closing. Oh, wow. There's a you, right thing to do. You've really arrived. If you're getting, you quoted back to you. Whoa, whoa. May, whoa. I, may I arrive one day? Okay. Uh, but there's Sorry. a right thing to do. There's also a right way to do it. And so, as your story illustrated, you can do the right thing and you can ruin it by doing it the wrong, wrong way. way. So, we want you, faithful, tell me more listeners, faithful listener, to do the right thing, but do it in the right way. I'd say amen to that. And all that somehow is connected to the family surviving. <laughs> but it is very much connected to that to me because it, well, yeah. the family is going to survive all this. Mm -hmm. I just hope that we can continue to have and maintain a Christian voice in this marketplace of ideas in a way that is consistent with the way of Jesus. That's my hope. Mm. May we follow the Jesus way in Arlington. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. A well, good way to end. Well, see you next week when we talk about eternity. Thanks for listening to the Tell Me More podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at fbca.org to find out more information about the podcast and our church. Thanks for listening. Have a good day.